Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode 7, Virgin Birth. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The claim of the virgin birth is received with doubt, even scorn, from many today. It's been the butt of many irreverent jokes. Maybe Mary was just a teenager who got herself into trouble and came up with an ingenious excuse. Others are incredulous and may reject the entire gospel account because of claims like this. It's such a bizarre claim, it seems like a strange thing to focus on in the creed. Let's hear what Ben has to say about its inclusion. I personally think it's it's a bit of a misunderstanding to, to think that the virgin birth just points to, look, this was a miracle. This was unlike any other birth. Actually, the point about the virgin birth in, in Luke's gospel, the whole point about it is that it's not totally unique. It puts Jesus in a long line of miraculous births running through the Bible. God's covenant with God's election of the people of Israel begins with Abraham and Sarah, who are profoundly old and she is unable to conceive, and God miraculously gives her the son, Isaac, who makes her laugh in her old age. That's where like the line of the covenant and the line of the promise begins, is with a miraculous birth. And as you go through the Old Testament, often the major turning point in salvation history is marked by one of these miracle births. The story of the Exodus, Moses' Moses's birth is not exactly miraculous, but it is a, his infancy is a marvelous, miraculous infancy, right? And it's another turning point in the history of salvation, the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. The greatest of the judges during the period of the judges is the miraculous birth of Samson. The beginning of the line of prophets and kings that first samuel begins with this story of a miraculous birth hannah who weeps and prays and god hears her prayer and gives her a child and actually when you read mary's prayer the magnificat it is largely a riff and and it's 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 taking the text of hannah's song of joy and riffing around it so when we speak about the virgin birth, we're not actually saying, look, this was an absolutely unique birth. It definitely is not primarily like a biological statement saying Jesus didn't need a human father because he had God as his father. We're not primarily talking about those issues. Primarily what we're talking about is the Old Testament. When we say Jesus is born of a virgin, we are putting him at the end of this long line of salvation history that runs back through the kings and prophets, back through the judges, back through Moses, right back to Abraham. Jesus is the culmination of this covenant lineage that runs through human history. As well as connecting Jesus with Old Testament prophecies, the virgin birth also underscores some important theological claims about Jesus. A couple of episodes ago, we looked at how Jesus could be fully God and fully human at the same time. This is another line that argues against erroneous understandings of Jesus' nature, like the idea that he was just pretending to be human, or that he was born human only and and was later adopted or indwelt by God. For many, the virgin birth is a reminder of Jesus' dual nature. 
Why does it matter that we affirm Jesus as both God and human? Well, if Jesus didn't fully share in our humanity, then how could we relate to him? How can he participate in our sufferings, our temptations? But if Jesus is only human, then how can he save us? He has to be different from us in some way, or otherwise he's just in the same boat we are. He has to be God as well in order to redeem us. Like much of the creed, the affirmation of the virgin birth is also a pretty powerful political statement, even if that's less obvious to our contemporary ears. Sex outside of marriage is generally acceptable and common practice in our society now, and even if much of the church rejects it by conviction, there are few church communities that would exclude people on these grounds today. It's easy to lose sight of just how shameful the circumstances of the virgin birth were to Mary, Joseph and Jesus in the first century world they inhabited. When Mary says to the angel Gabriel, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you've said, accepting her impregnation by the Holy Spirit, she is opening herself up to enormous shame, even to the lawful penalty of death by stoning. Her family and Joseph's family will be shunned by society. Even today, honour killings occur in some parts of the world for sex outside of marriage. Even more horrifically, these executions include women who have been raped. And in the societies most of us share, it's not that long ago that unmarried women who fell pregnant disappeared to give birth in secret and were expected to give their babies up for adoption. Female purity has long been a moral obsession. So what do we make of the fact that Jesus was born into such circumstances? The humble status into which Jesus was born emphasises the grace of God all the more. Think of the great Christ hymn in Philippians 2, which speaks of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see this too in the Magnificat, the song that Mary sings after Gabriel appears and delivers the prophecy of Jesus' birth. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked with favour on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Before the Incarnation, Many Israelites were expecting a Messiah that would restore sovereignty to Israel in the political arena. They were waiting for a powerful king, not a child born in a stable to a disgraced young woman and a carpenter in the insignificant locale of Bethlehem. 
Jesus, rubbing shoulders with the down and outs, preaching peace and forgiveness of sins rather than the overthrowing of the Roman oppressors, was not at all what they expected, despite the many suffering servant prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. The humble circumstances of Jesus' birth are yet another reminder that lordship means something very different to God than it usually does for us. In humans, power corrupts, but God leads in humility and in self-sacrifice. As well as highlighting the audacity of the incarnation, this account of the virgin birth is a story of redemption when it comes to women. Compare Mary's experience with the slave Hagar in the book of Genesis. Hagar is Sarah's maidservant, and she's given to Abraham in order to conceive a surrogate son for Sarah, who is barren. At a crucial juncture in the foundation story of Israel, an angel of the Lord appears to an Egyptian slave woman and says, in essence, do not be afraid. You will give birth to a son and he will become great. Sound familiar? In both accounts, God speaks to the father as well. But the outcome in the gospel narrative is very different. Where Abraham shirks his responsibility and casts Hagar out, Joseph stands alongside Mary and offers his support and protection. Hagar has no choice in her own childbearing role, and Sarah and Abraham name her only as the slave. But Mary joyfully gives her consent. May it be to me as you have said. And with praise on her lips, she declares herself to be the servant of God. In Mary's story, we glimpse the honour due also to Hagar. The reference to Jesus' mother also invites us to think about family here. Much could be made about Jesus' illegitimacy, but actually Jesus didn't make much of biological ties at all. Remember how Jesus addressed his mother and the disciple John from the cross? Woman, here is your son, he says to Mary. To the disciple, here is your mother. And John took Mary into his own home. A transformative aspect of the gospel is the way that it radically reconfigures our understanding of kinship. As Christians, our family are our fellow believers. In baptism, we join a new family, one that goes far beyond shared genes. In Christ, we are adopted into God's family. Let's go in a different direction now and move from the claim of the virgin birth to the idea of miracles more generally. The well-known atheist Richard Dawkins writes in his book The God Delusion that the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. Now, Dawkins tends to have a scoffing tone, which is pretty typical of the new atheist movement he is part of. New atheists often present a caricature of religion and are very dismissive. But his statement about miracles here resonates with the more widespread view that a belief in miracles is incompatible with contemporary scientific knowledge. So what do we make of miracles? The virgin birth is just one example, but the scriptures are filled with miraculous events. In Genesis, Sarah is in her 90s when she conceives and gives birth to Isaac. In Exodus, the Red Sea is parted, allowing the Israelites to flee Egypt. Jonah survives in the belly of a large fish. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego survive in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. 
And of course, Jesus, the disciples, and various figures in the early church performed numerous miraculous works in the New Testament. In many ways, the attitude to miracles serves as a litmus test for our understanding of how God operates in the world more generally. Traditional doctrines of creation and providence hold that God continually sustains the creation and that this is necessary to its existence. But how does this occur? If God acts on the world from the outside, then this is perceived as undermining the integrity and the sufficiency of natural laws for the operation of the natural world. And many see these natural laws as providing ample explanation for the existence of the world and its workings, with no need to invoke a divine cause, and miracles are therefore rejected as part of the package. The question of miracles calls for a scientifically aware engagement. So let's go to Alistair for his thoughts. Well, obviously, this depends on how you define miracles. And, and David Hume talked about miracles as violation of the laws of nature. But anyone who knows any intellectual history knows that the phrase laws of nature dates from about, oh, what, 1600, maybe 1650. So in effect, it's, it's a recent development. Science doesn't lay down what can happen and what doesn't happen. It, in effect, investigates what does happen. That's the key point. And so one of the great points that Isaac Newton made is something I take very, very seriously. Isaac Newton said, supposing something was miraculous, but it happened all the time, we simply wouldn't recognize it as a miracle. And one of the points that Newton was making is that the, the beauty of the world, the fact that we are here, the fact that there is a world at all, it's actually miraculous, but we've got so used to it, we fail to appreciate it. And so for me, I think that is very important. I don't think science um, does anything other than help us to understand how this world works. But I think that it, it doesn't exclude the category of miraculous. It simply, in effect, says it's very difficult to define this scientifically. So for me, there isn't really an issue here, but there is an issue that arises what Newton said, which is we need to be attentive to our world and really appreciate because so often we lose sight of just how wonderful it is. And to me, that's a really important point. We've covered a lot of ground in this episode, the topic of miracles, the impact of the gospel on our understanding of family, the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. Pulling it all together, I invite you to think about why we memorialise the virgin birth in the creed. What meaning do you find in this line of the creed? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.